Hi everyone, and welcome to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast, your birth for the best stories in boating. Each week, my colleagues and I will bring you everything from salty stories to thought-provoking trend discussions, as well as interviews with the most interesting characters to ply the sea. Whether you're listening from the boatyard, your slip, or hopefully well underway, we're glad to have you aboard. Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Dan Harding, joined by a very special repeat guest, Bill Sisson, my friend. Good morning. Good morning, Dad. Bill, what's happening? Thanks nice, for the- nice to see you. Rainy, rainy day in New England again. It is. It is. One of those days makes you really can't wait for summer. If this was snow, we'd be having, over the last two weeks, we'd probably have three feet of snow. I think. Yeah, I'm, I'm over it. After the holidays, it's... Uh, I am too. I'm, I'm ready for spring. I'm thinking of spring too. I'm thinking of spring fishing. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what... Uh, well, Bill, uh, welcome back. You know, it's... Uh, Always good to have you on here. Wanted to talk a little bit today about your new book launch, Season of the Striper. How's uh Yeah. It's, uh, how's it's, that been going? It's been exciting. Yeah? Yeah. I can't I can't tell you how sales are, but you know, we, we through, <laughs> must be through the roof then. <laughs> Absolutely. Now we're getting we're getting nice feedback from people, yeah. from readers, from friends, and uh, it's gotten a lot of nice editorial reviews. Yeah. It's been, gratifying so. yeah now we're honored to have one of the one of your excerpts on the boat chapter and uh in a recent issue i think it uh really yeah. really resonated well good i'm glad it's you know it was a you know it's one of the what do they call it a passion project yeah and something sure. that um i've been thinking of doing probably for 25 years and i'm glad i waited and got a little bit more maturity a little more experience in in both the fishing and just in publishing and trying to figure out what kind of book I really wanted to do yeah. on the fish. Okay. And that, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today is a little bit about, you know, how your two lives kind of came together. You got your fishing life and your writing life, and they really have come together in, in such a unique way. And, uh, you know, as, as a fellow editor and colleague, that's, that's kind of what fascinates me most. So I thought maybe we just... Take it way, way back, and uh, talk about the your how your love affair with fishing kind of got started. The way, way back machine. Way back, <laughs> you know i I can't remember how it started with striped bass, really, because they've kind of always been part of my consciousness or my fishing consciousness. But one of my earliest memories, and it's not, um, you know, it's not me sitting there pulling in a big fish. It's it's me being about uh, waist high, maybe less than that, along a, a seawall in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. And I am reaching out over the seawall to try to grab some little fish that are in the water mm-hmm. in front of me. And my mother, I remember, this is frequent situation. She'd have hold of my, you know, hold of my shorts a firm hand, you know, right around the back of my shorts as I reach further and further out to try to touch these little fish. I remember they're just flitting in the water. So Mm -hmm. that was the earliest. I was entranced by fish from the start, and I spent hours and hours and years really fishing off this town dock in in Watch Hill for cunners and and winter flounder and tinker mackerel and snapper blues and that kind of thing. So I was, you know... I was all in on fishing. It's kind of amazing. So maybe we'll touch on this later. But you, your family has a, a history of seafaring and a, and a real connection to the yep. water. Do you feel like that that played a role? I think it did play a role. And when I learned more about their history, 
researching the book, it, it became clearer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's one place I fish a lot in Rhode Island where turns out one of my great uncles had a like a summer fishing shack mm. on the on the on the on this bay side of the island where you know I've got one photo of it. It's got you know a cistern to capture the water. It's got two women standing out there, one with a little baby. You know, I don't know yeah, yeah. somebody, some relative, and he was a. Uh, yeah, he was a sane hauler, and he been probably a lobsterman and, and other things too. So, I think it did. It's sometimes it feels like it, you know, came down through the genes as much as anything. What's interesting with your story is that was your was your dad or your brothers were they, were they really into fishing, or were you unique in your immediate family? I think I was unique, you know, in 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 my family. Well, my father did like to he he would come and sit on the dock mm-hmm. and fish with a hand. We all fished with hand lines when we got started. So. Mm-hmm. I would be sitting between my father on one side and my older brother on the other side. And, okay. and um, you know, I just, I remember thinking back about how comfortable and how safe that felt sitting between these two guys and how thrilled I was to be yeah. catching these little fish. You know, you drop down, you have a sinker and a little hook and some bait, the bait would usually be clam. Mm. And uh, you get a nibble and you'd snap your wrist and, and pull them up. And my father was... My father was an impatient man and an athletic guy, so he was catching them as fast as he could. It was just a big race for him. And he'd be talking to him, come on, come on, here's one, come on, you're not going to get away, here's another one. He'd, he'd yeah, haul yeah. it right up. So that was early memories of him fishing. Hmm. Uh, now what about your brother? Did he did he also kind of catch the fishing bug early on? He's fished a little bit, but he was primarily a surfer. Okay. So his relationship with the ocean was young and, you know, he was, he'd been, you know, he's become a paddleboarder, but he surfed, you know, around a lot of, you know, good part of the world, yeah. California, uh, in the islands a lot. Okay. And I surfed as well growing up. So I surfed and fished. I always think it's so interesting to f- kind of like discover where, where someone's passion really started. And I feel like with fishing so often it's, it's directly generational. It's like, yeah, I mm-hmm. fished because my dad fished and, right. you know, my, my brothers were fishermen, but uh, you had so many different people along your journey that kind of directed you to it. You just had a, a beautiful column in the, uh, in the most recent issue of Angler's Journal about a, uh, a friend you met on the, on the sure. school bus. I mean, you mind telling, telling yeah. that one? I love that story. Larry, Larry Madeira. I think he was five years old than I was. And at, at this time, I had started striped bass fishing and was doing my best. But, you know, I was... I was, you know, I was struggling like a lot of young fishermen do who don't have a father or an uncle or someone to show them the ropes initially. So Larry was that guy for me. He lived about a quarter mile away from me on the same little river village we lived in. And I remember hearing him talking about striped bass. It was probably, it was probably fall. And he was talking about it with some of the older kids on the bus. And so my ears perked up. And in those days, the back two seats in the bus were reserved for the upperclassmen in high school. I think I was probably in ninth grade, eighth or ninth grade. And so I said to myself, I got to, you know, I've got to talk to this guy because he knows. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he has things he can show me. So I waited one day. He didn't take the bus every day because he had a car and sometimes he drove to school. But it was a day when he was there. 
whoever was sitting next to him got off the bus, and I just slipped back. And I remember, still remember him looking kind of like he looked down at me because he was tall, and I was. It was like you know. <laughs> no, he was sitting down <laughs> with this look of, "What are you doing here?" And I quickly yeah. said, "You know, hi, I'm I'm Bill Sisson, and you know my older brother Pete, and you know." I really, you know, I'm really into striped bass, and I've heard you talking about it, so I just thought maybe, you know, we could talk about striped bass. And Wow. You know. That, I mean, that, that took some stones for, for an eighth <laughs> grader to go up to an upperclassman like that. Right. Never never afraid to talk to anybody. No. I, I've always had the ability to talk to people without strangers. That, that sounds like one of your uh, one of your early earlier interviews, but yeah. you guys went on to kind of strike uh, the unlikeliest of friendships. We did, and you know, it's only kind of in hindsight that I realized that his father had died that year, and Larry was seventeen or eighteen, and so that you know that had to create a you know a big hole in his life. I was I don't think I knew at the time that his father had passed, and. Uh, so I think in a lot of ways he was happy to have someone like me who wanted just to talk about fish and to go fishing and to learn as much as I could and to kind of look up to him as a yeah. big brother. Right. So it was a good relationship. Did he have siblings? No. He didn't okay. have siblings. He did have a car, which is important. <laughs> and so, you know, he showed me some spring spots, which I didn't know. Yeah. And that was fun. And then we, we started to um, fish in the, uh, the ocean. Mm. And later he had a little, I think it was a 15-foot, you know, like Starcraft aluminum boat, which we took out on the reefs in Watch Hill at night, which <laughs> in hindsight, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take my kids out in the little thing. It would anchor up ahead of a rip and trail uh, big plugs on lead line and let them work in the current. So they were big wow. swimmers. They'd, they'd get behind the boat. You'd lock the reel down, stick it in a holder, and, you know, the Plugs would swim and the rods would be there kind of thumping a little bit. And when a fish came up, you know, bang, the yeah. rod would go over more. So often, you know, I wouldn't say that we killed them. We caught fish and I often fell asleep to the rocking of the boat and yeah. everything. And uh, it's not till I got my own boat and got on the same reefs. I said, a 15 and a half foot boat? What were, <laughs> what were we doing out here? Wow, that just feels like one of those good old good old days stories of uh, simpler times. But yeah, that's... Uh, yeah. And his uncles were draggermen over in Stonington, Connecticut. So he came from a really fishy background. His father fished. And uh, we used to go over and meet one of his uncles who ran a dragger and get um, buckets of fresh squid in the springtime. And then we'd Take it and freeze it and fish it fresh off the beaches or in some of the rocks at night. Wow. Yeah. Um, so. Well, that's, yeah, that's uh, that's an amazing story. And it, what I love is, like, you really kind of both helped each other in some ways. Certainly. Yeah. Taught you the ways of fishing, but right. you probably came into his life at a, at a good time as well. I was. And, you know, he didn't, I don't think he had, didn't have a girlfriend at the time. Or he was trying to get a girlfriend. So, you know, it was like, I, and I was just all about fishing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes when his car was in the shop, I remember we used to both walk home from the beach. It was like a few miles walk. Um, wow. And I remember waking up on the beach sitting, in a, you know, we had a couple of little chairs with cast that was bottom fishing and you put your rod in a holder yeah and uh i remember one more i remember waking up one night i was at that obviously after midnight my line was washed up i think he was asleep his line was washed up on the shore and you know reel him up put the stuff away put the rods on your shoulder and 
you know, walk home. That, that feels every bit like the relationship of, of brothers. <laughs> Does know? it? Yeah. 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 And it was good because, you know, a lot of striped bass fishing takes place at night. So it's important to get really comfortable with being out at night, either on the beaches alone and the rocks alone or in a boat, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes alone, often with partners. But um, I remember, you know, walking home was that kind of strange feeling because the dogs are barking and, you know, and, but I think it's those early experiences got me really comfortable. With yeah. So I've never been uncomfortable being out right. by myself at three o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock at night. Just now, now, did you guys, have you guys stayed, you know, did you stay connected over the years or I mean, I'm for, sure for a while we close. did for a while. Then I, you know, then I made my way through high school and then I, and I headed out West for a few years. So we lost track. But then when I came back, I um, ran into him at that same spring spot that we always fished. Wow. We had a good, good catching up then. I used to see him around a lot more because he taught fly fishing for a while and I'd bump into him. And, and then there was a period where, you know, I started having kids mm. and sort of lost track of each other, but I re- reunited last year again, mm. which was, which was nice. Yeah. You know, what was that like? It was, it was good. Cause he, you know, there was two, he had an, he had another friend my age and it was a friend, a, a class, an old classmate of mine that I used to see quite a bit, but um, I hadn't seen him in a while either. So it was nice to see both of them. Yeah. And we went back down to that spring spot where the three mm. of us used to fish and sat and just talked about it and yeah, yeah. caught up. Now there was, uh, and again, if you if you followed enough of your writing through the pages of Angler's Journal or the book or even even some of your soundings columns, you know there was there was a lot of other people along the journey that kind of, mm. I think maybe fair to say steered your passion. I I loved there was a picture on your office wall back when we had an office and we weren't working out of my kitchen. <laughs> yeah, that uh, was you had a fishing club. That, that was high school. That's right. That was a. Fishing club in high school started by Captain Al Anderson, who was, I think he was my ninth or 10th grade biology teacher. And uh, we learned kind of early that he was a, a striped bass guy, so that had our attention. And yeah. he used to fish, he kind of pioneered some of the night fishing over in Block Island, mm. casting live eels. So he was a, he was a smart guy, pretty intense used to be kind of grumpy. I always attribute it to the fact that he probably got in at two or three o'clock in the morning, you know, so that makes more sense. That makes more sense. It now. made more sense. But we, you know, he was, he wasn't easy on me because I fished. He was hard. And, and the other kid named Larry Madeira, who I'd met, uh, Larry Manette, I'm sorry, who I'd met again last year, he remembered a little bit more than I did. He said, don't you remember Ga- Captain Al would yell at you, you know, Sisson, stop spending so much time on striped bass and spend some more time in the books. You'd do better, you know. Uh, and the fishing club was fun. It was a bunch of high school kids, and uh, I think we used to go cod fishing in the springtime out on one of the headboats out of Galilee. Okay. And it was just, it was fun. And I've got a picture of all the same kids and yeah, we're all there holding up some codfish after one of those trips. That 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 picture of mine, that's like a real Sandlot cover, right? It was right. just like that that <laughs> yeah. mo- moment in time yeah. when when nothing else mattered. Fishing was the most important right. thing going. Nobody could grow a mustache. Yet, I don't think <laughs> we're all everyone tried, <laughs> but it was uh, mixed results. Yeah, it was. You know, it seemed like a little bit like it was long ago kind of days. You know. Yeah, we're fishing nerds. Yeah, I remember I used to bring my reel, my pen reel catalog into uh, 
school and I'd show it to the, you know, this Larry Minute and that would sit behind me and say, yeah, I remember you used to bring your pen reel catalogs into school. So that's how you get a reputation. That's, uh, and I used to draw striped bass on all my notebook covers and in the margins of my notebook. Wow. I do that and I do surfboards both. So that was it. Yeah. 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 Well, that's amazing. But back to Al for a second. You guys yeah. also stayed connected and formed. We did. What you would maybe consider a, an unlikely of friendship for a, for a teacher, literally a teacher and student, right? Right. Yeah, we did stay in touch, you know, and um, so when I when I came back to Rhode Island and started fishing, um, you know, he just, I think he got in touch or I got in touch with him. I can't really remember how it, how yeah. it happened. And uh, he would occasionally take us fishing, a friend of mine, and for me and a friend of mine, and uh, I remember we used to, we used to, I think he was selling bluefish at the time because there were a lot of bluefish, so we'd go out and kind of market fish for him, just crank away. Come on, boys, you know, we'd fish with umbrella rigs, catching four or five at a time, and... Uh, That'd be a good fight. <laughs> it's a good fight, you know, and he was always, um, he was a really... You know, smart angler. He's he tagged more striped bass and bluefin tuna than anyone alive. He's in the IGFA mm-hmm. Hall of Fame uh, for as a charter skipper. So he was a smart Amazing guy. That you cross paths with him as as I know a, ni- in touch. a ninth grade student. Yeah, I know. And I I would try to talk about striped bass with him. Yeah, as much as I could. But you know, he was more about. Let's what was your grade in the class at the end? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> he, did, he didn't play favorites. I might have got a B. I'm I'm hoping. But <laughs> Well, I don't think we're going to find that report card, so I think your secret's safe. Yeah. Well, that's that's. But, uh, but we fished for you know we fished for years, not a lot, but we would fish. He would take me often fishing in the spring when he's just scouting like the new fish coming in. Yeah. So he wasn't. He had charters lined up, but he was trying to figure out exactly when the fish were going to come. Right. And when they were in there thick enough. So he would take a couple of friends, you know, me and maybe a couple of other guys that he would charge us for. We're just there to kind of, you know, see if the fish were there yet. So that was fun. Yeah. And we fished up the Thames River one, um, I think it was early one spring. It was one spring. Same thing, because he, he used to fish up there as well. And Okay. Well, let me, uh, I think we'll, we'll take a, a slight pivot from the start of your fishing career to the start, um, I'm kind of interested in the start of your writing career. When when did when did that bug start? Was that early on, or not till not till later? The um, you know, it was right around sometime after high school, before college. Okay. That I, you know, I had an interest in in writing. I read a lot. I thought that, um, you know, I. I read enough to figure out that I could write, hmm. and I was always a, a decent writer in, in high school, and, right. and and I polished that somewhat in college. Okay, so that was an interest, and in, you know, that old saying about write what you know, you know. So I knew fishing, so I yeah. I made my way in that direction. But me, I was really kind of a. I went to school at the University of Rhode Island, got a degree in journalism, so. Um, I did a lot of hard news writing, news writing. Right, because the thinking was you were gonna, you really wanted to be a, a yeah. newspaper reporter. That I wanted was, to be a daily newspaper reporter is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And I graduated in one of those recessions when there was no jobs to speak of. <laughs> and I'd done a little freelancing for this magazine called Soundings. And um, they liked me, they were impressed, and they offered me a job, you know, 
before I got out of school. So I had a job lined up. So I was lucky, you know. I didn't uh, realize that timing. So you were still in school. You were in college when you got yep. some freelance assignments with Soundings. That must have been early days of snow. Yeah, somewhat early days of Soundings, but not was, but yeah. not quite. In, in hindsight, it was early days, you know. Yeah. And um, I went over there and I had a summer internship and I was graduating college in December. So... I had no idea you had a Soundings internship. Yeah, I don't think they had interns at the time, but I think <laughs> maybe slowly I, paid employees. I think I was their first one, so uh, they needed help. They brought me over that summer, and I commuted. And where was it based then? Essex. They're in Essex, right in the Dauntless Shipyard. Wow. So that's kind of where I, you know, cut my teeth, so to speak, and and then they hired me. When I left that summer, they said, "Listen, you know, if you're interested." Where would be interested you, you know, offering you a full-time job in December, and they did. When you graduated? Yes. So upon graduation, you had a job offer. I did. And I had a job offer at a little daily, too. So I had to weigh both of them. Um, one was the Westerly Sun, which was yeah. kind of my hometown paper. That was a daily. And soundings. And as much as I wanted uh, daily newspaper writing, I didn't think that, you know, the hometown paper was going to carry me where I wanted to go. I thought maybe I could get there faster through soundings, you know. Wow. So that's where I did. I can't believe all these years I didn't know, I didn't realize you had a, quote, internship at soundings because it's a quick, a quick sidebar. I mean, I used to joke because we had your daughter Carly was an intern at, at Power and Motor Yacht, and she also was one of the only people I ever knew that I gave her a job offer that was upon her graduation. So that's a small world. Isn't it? it's, a, it's a small town. It's a, it's a small town in a small niche, but uh, that feels like an, more than an unbelievable coincidence. I know. And uh, you know, I wouldn't, I didn't know soundings at the time mm -hmm. and I was staying in kind of a, a cold water flat mm. at the beach one summer. And I think soundings ran two ads in the Wesley Sun, really tiny classified ads saying, you know, something like, you know, looking for writers for soundings. And some woman who was staying in the same place where I was staying had spotted it. She clipped it out. And I remember, you know, I came, came in one evening and she was in the, in sort of the lobby and she held up this tiny little piece of paper and a friend said, Bill, I cut this out for you. You might be interested in this job. It was a tiny little classified. Yeah, like, yeah. And I said, you know, and I remember, you know, I sat down at some point and typed out a letter to them, kind of onion skin paper with an old manual type. Oh, check, my check, check, God. Check, 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 <laughs> and put it in the mail, sent it off, kind of forgot about it. And then, you know, a few weeks later, I got a note back saying, you know, they'd be interested in some freelance work. And so I sold them a couple of stories and a couple of photos. And then, Any you know, idea what one of those first, do you remember any of those first stories? Uh, there was something with the Watch Hill Lighthouse, I remember, <laughs> that I did. There was a black and white photo, and I think I had a little essay about the end of the season or something. Wow. And then um, then they asked me if I wanted to come over and work in the summer, so I did. And that's kind of how it got started. That's amazing. All the, yeah. the little serendipitous things right. that happened that lead you a path. You obviously would famously go on. You, you were the editor-in-chief for, ah, geez, how how long was that? Not to put you on the spot. Fifteen years, maybe. Yeah, it sounds about like that. Sounds about right. And then, well, then also you, you know, editor of things to go over trade only, and then founded I, founded English Journal. Trade only was interesting because it kind of got back to my news, newspaper roots. So I, yeah. I liked that a lot, and 
I was in charge of trade only during the Great Recession mm-hmm. when a lot of companies, unfortunately, were going out of business. A lot of dealerships were folding. A lot of people being laid off. So there was a lot of hard news reporting. Right. Kind of important work you could do to keep the industry informed as much as possible about that. So I enjoyed that. And then there was an opportunity to, to start a new magazine, which became Angler's Journal. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, I was... Uh, I had enough experience both in the magazine world and certainly in the fishing world to do that. Yeah, we would, we'll touch on that more in a second. I guess one of my questions was, so now so now we understand the path where, where these two things kind of intersected. I was kind of curious on a personal note to know, like, how did your job as a writer influence your fishing? How did my job as a writer influenced my fishing or or even vice versa you know how did how did the two kind of work together i mean i've i've seen all these uh these these envelopes with with (laughs) notes from from fishing trips and and things like that but i got to think they would have they both clearly influenced each other i was always real comfortable with a notebook in my back pocket you know Mm -hmm. for and you know as a reporter you always sort of carried one yeah i was used to taking notes and interviewing people and then, you know, at Soundings was primarily, you know, uh, sailing and then powerboats and mm-hmm. fishing was down the list. But I would yeah. manage to get a, a fishing column started mm-hmm. there. And so I started to take notes, you know, when I'd go out yeah, with the idea that, well, maybe this could be a column, maybe that could be a column. Yeah. And then I'd, I'd you know, start scribbling notes down. I mean, I almost wondered if your skills as a reporter and kind of like being inquisitive helped your fishing because you always kind of like i don't know maybe just being a more active observer does that if that makes sense yeah i think that's true you have to you had to be had to have your eyes open as yeah. i say you know and you had to take note of things and you had to keep you, you know some of it you could do in memory and some of it is better to write down so what tide were those fish found on what was the wind direction yeah you know what's the time of year what kind of bait are they eating what kind of lure did they did they they prefer, you know, yeah. which ones did they turn their nose up on? And so that was a big part of it. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time at, at a lighthouse there where there were a lot of, you know, adult fishermen. And they were, you know, they're a pretty closed mouth bunch. But mm-hmm. they would, when the fish weren't breaking or in there in any numbers, they would just they'd stand around in little groups of three or four or two or three and they'd smoke cigarettes and tell stories. So... I was always eavesdropping, you know, <laughs> and they knew it. I mean, they would, they would be a tight niche group, but I could get like a little spot, you know, in between a couple of them or, and just listen. And they were, you know, they didn't have anything to hide from me. Yeah. And so I picked up a lot of information wow. that way. I, I wasn't taking notes or anything at that point. I yeah. was just a kid. I was all ears and I'd ask questions like, you know, why do you use swimming? You know, why are you fishing that plug with the lip on it? You mm-hmm. know? Why aren't you fishing that now? And they'll tell me, well, you know, that's more of a nighttime plug. And yeah, we talk about leaders and knots and, you know, wow. how to gaff a fish properly. And, you know, how do you fish, you know, kind of in a line of people. Just, we call, they call it combat fishing. But you got, you'd see that happen. And you'd see, you know, 10 guys fishing shoulder to shoulder. And you just, you know, figured it out. And then one day you... The fish started breaking and, you know, you could cast straight and you had a pretty good rod. And so you just took your spot in the lineup. Wow. I love that. They were all, they were all, 
they were good to me. I wouldn't say they, you know, I wasn't their little buddy or anything. I was trying to catch fish like they were, but I followed the rules and mm-hmm. they kind of set. Took you into the tribe a bit. Yeah, they set the protocol. So you get a fish, you go down, you pick it up, you bring it back up to the seawall, you unhook it. And then in that amount of time, you know, maybe a couple of guys had kind of taken your spot. So you just have to learn to get back down there and say, you know, I just bake my fish. I just put my fish away. So, you know, how about you sliding back over a little bit, you know? But just say, <laughs> yeah, yeah. They'd make room for you. Just had to be able to cast straight, not cross their line, you know, right. not whack them in the head and yeah. be deferential. And I would, you know, I had good balance and stuff. So when one of those guys caught a fish, I could slip down <laughs> on the lower slippery rocks and help them get their fish. Okay. Yeah. So they appreciated that. Yeah. Yeah. It's there's so many little fishing subcultures, and you've always done a yeah. good job capturing that. But I think a big reason for that is that you're able to fit in with these guys, you know, yeah. and, uh, and assimilate. Yeah, and you'd hear things. And, you know, secrecy was always a big part of striped bass fishing when I grew up. And, yeah. and you know, when I started fishing with maybe in my late 20s with like some contemporaries I knew, I mean, it was already ingrained in me that, you know, you just don't tell anybody about where you caught them and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I'm sure those early bunch of guys kind of made that point to me too. You know, I wanted to, I want to go back to the, the notes and notebooks. Cause mm-hmm. I, what, I mean, I, I've seen them. You, so you kept notes and notebooks from like almost all of your fishing outings over the years. So tell me a little about that. And then also the, the role that it played in, in this, uh, this beautiful Rizzoli book. Probably 25 years, maybe, keeping notebooks, something uh-huh. like that. I mean, I found it back, you know, easily 25 years. Yeah. I'd write on anything, I remember. I do remember that. I mean, sometimes I'd have real notebooks, but <laughs> early on, sometimes it'd be like a candy wrapper, or you couldn't write much on there. But if someone said something, you know, and you had nothing to write on. Yeah. I mean, I remember, I remember going from it's work the smartphone. to a boat really fast and having like two candy bars for dinner and then something would happen. I'd want to write down either something that my buddy maybe had said or something I saw. So, you know, out comes a Snickers wrapper and you're writing. Jeez. And I don't think I was, I think I'd quit smoking in those days, but I remember writing <laughs> on the back of matchbook, inside of matchbook covers, really anything that yeah. you had would do. Really kind of a, a reporter's life. Yeah, sometimes loose papers you just write on and then copy over. Well, that, that old habit certainly uh, is, is hard to break. I see you still, still writing on uh, vanilla <laughs> folders. That is, uh, you know, the memories get you canceled these days. But memory is pretty fallible. And I had, you know, I've always been, I was blessed with a good memory. But even those things can come up short. And, you know, you can't, over several years, you can't remember that you got seven fish on such and such a day and that this mm. was the kind of the, the range of the weights and what you caught them on. And this is really how you felt. There's so many days and so many nights that, you know, you had to write that stuff down to have a chance of remembering. And also, you kind of had to write down how you felt from mm-hmm. that night. Like, oh, this is like a really good night. Or another night, you know, it's been five days in a row, no fish. You know, I'm, you know we've been fishing bunch of tides I'm, I'm exhausted i'm tired you know this kind of sucks you know <laughs> where are the fish so you know you get the whole range of things but i think the journalism training taught me to try to rely on notes mm-hmm. and other memoirs i've read with a lot of quotes that are clearly kind of remembered quotes yeah. somewhat fabricated never struck me as the kind of writing i could do easily mm-hmm. you know i i didn't feel right making up things yeah. making up dialogue 
even if I knew the, the sentiment that right. should be there. Right. So I took notes for that reason, and it really proved helpful to look back on them. And even if the quotes are short, yeah. you know, I'd have that, and I could count on it being accurate. I told one example. You know, memory is uh, a tricky thing. Oh, I love this. You can tell a story about your mom? <laughs> yeah. Oh, So beautiful. I grew up, one of my great uncles uh, was a, his name was Ed. He was a hall saner that set nets off the beach, circle of fish, pull them in. And Ed supposedly was one of those guys who could smell the striped bass. And my mother told the stories over and over, you know, Ed would be sitting up in the dunes. His crew would be on the beach. He'd stand up. He kind of put his nose up in the air, and he said, okay, boys, let's put the boat in, you know. She told it so clearly and so memorable that I could see it happening because I, I knew the dunes. I knew it was a high dune there, and uh -huh. I could sort of, sort of picture him sitting there with his guys. When I finally found his obituary, it turns out, you know, I wasn't even born, you know, when he passed away. So my you, mother, you thought this was a real right, memory. I thought it was a real memory. My mother witnessed it, and she yeah. told it to us so vividly that yeah. it's like, ah, I couldn't believe that I didn't see it because yeah. in my mind, I, I could see it. Yeah, I love so that. It was a good reminder to, you know, try to find the notes just to make sure. And check the dates. you got to at least make sure you're yeah, alive yeah. when you're remembering somebody. Now, the, uh, the, the, detail, the details certainly, certainly matter. Mm -hmm. And uh, so shifting, shifting to the book a little bit, it, it's kind of amazing. In some ways, it's like, to say that this is your first book doesn't really feel fair because in many ways, if you subscribe to Angler's Journal, you know it's like you really do four. You really did four books a year. You know, Angler's Journal is, yeah, is I really I think what in many ways feels like it led up to this book. But what what was the genesis of Seasons of the Striper? I think Angler's Journal, the quarterly magazine, had a lot to do with it. So yeah. the ideas came. The idea of having a book with photos and it certainly came from that. Yeah. So the work on Angler's Journal showed me just how powerful really strong images can be yeah. in, in driving home, you know, of making the experience real mm -hmm. in like a, in a printed form. Because my goal had always been to write a striped bass book, a traditional book, no photos, you know, All right. just lots of pages and, you know, that's a proper book. Yeah. And, Working with uh, so many photographers in Angler's Journal showed me how excited and how taken people were by the imagery, by the photos, and combined with good prose, good stories, you know, that was like a winning combination. Right. And so suddenly I thought, well, I know the photographers, or I know a lot of the photographers, and I can certainly find out the rest. Why don't, why don't we do something with photos and text? Mm -hmm. um, and um, I had an email relationship with uh, Jim Machette from Rizzoli mm -hmm. Publishing, and he liked Angler's Journal, and eventually I got around to pitching him the idea of a kind of a coffee table book mm -hmm. with, you know, strong, strong prose as I can make it, but also really strong photographs and really yeah. strong design, which I felt that the fish, it sounds funny to say the fish deserved it, but I think the, the fish and the sure. anglers who pursued it kind of deserve to see their passion, their pastime represented mm -hmm. in more than just words, but also in images. So that was the thinking behind the book. I knew, and I knew how good some of the photography was, you know. Now that's, that's really well said. And I think, I think one of the things that's a misconception with this book, and you know, you, you hear the phrase coffee table book, and especially you, if you know, if you're in publishing, you know Rizzoli, there's a certain connotation of, you know, high-end photography, really nice paper and things like that. But this, 
make no mistake. I mean, this is 35,000 words. This is a full book. I mean, there's a, there's a ton of great writing. I mean, can you just like kind of touch on the, the wide range of topics. This people are, Oh, it's a striped bass book, but it's, mm-hmm. it's so much more like just a few of the chapters, if you don't mind. Well, it's called seasons of the striper. So we certainly go into, you know, there's chapters on spring, summer, and fall, which is the main fishing season. But beyond that, there's, there's a chapter on fishing at night, which mm-hmm. I think was really important. There's a chapter on boats, which, you know, I, I love the time spent catching fish on boats. So it was worth talking about that. Yeah. There was a chapter on partners, some of the mm-hmm. characters that I'd fish with yeah. and that I learned a lot with. And some of them we both learned together mm-hmm. how to fish. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a good bit of conservation in it. Mm-hmm. And then there's a, there's a chapter just on the fish itself, kind of its biology, but also mixed in with, you know, stories about, you know, I remember when I was, I don't know, 12 or 13 watching stripers come up in the back of a wave, you know, and snare uh, bait fish right out of it. And I think it was the next year I had one come up and take this Hopkins jig, you know, so you could see it, big waves, big nor'easter, and you're casting and your jig is up in the top of the wave and you see a striper kind of climb up the back and grab it. And it was like, wow, you know, yeah. this is pretty incredible. Yeah. So, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of personal observations. That's what, that was, that the la- that was the last thing I was to say. Yeah. I was like, that's a great overview of the chapters, but I think like each section is also like deeply personal. A lot of like great anecdotes, colorful yeah. characters, and just you know right. really powerful imagery. When I started, the fishery was healthy as a kid, mm-hmm. and you know we used to the keeper size limit was sixteen inches, and it was commonplace to mark sixteen inches on your rod either with tape or with thread, mm-hmm. and um, so. There was a lot of good fishing, and then we watched, you know, took, you know, fish through the moratorium when yeah. the, when the stock collapsed, and yeah. you know, all all possession had to end, and they had to take a good number of years in the Chesapeake to rebuild the fishery, right. and it's come back, and now it's under, you know, it's under some some kind of strict uh, size limits once again because the fishery has been considered overfished once more. Right. So, I remember. The last time they rebuilt the stocks in Maryland, one of the scientists told me that his biggest concern for the future was, you know, man's, humans' inability to manage abundance, mm. which I thought was interesting, and I wrote it down. And, and you know, this time around, when it, it came back to it being overfished once more, you know, I couldn't help but have his words kind of ring in my ear, you know, that we just... You know, as a species, we're not really good at managing abundance. You know, we tend to we tend to use it right up. We first applaud our efforts yeah, to yeah. protect them and to bring it back, which we did. And everybody patted each other on the back for the good job they did. And, and then we were kind of back in the same situation where we had to impose, you know. Kind of so, unbelievable how cyclical yeah, that is. Yep. So now we're bringing, we're trying to bring the stock back again. The only one difference is, you know, there's certainly more people fishing on it, but also the spawning grounds probably aren't quite as healthy as they once were. So yeah. you really need a good helping hand from Mother Nature. So if you get enough females on, on the spawning grounds to drop their eggs, that those eggs, you know, the viability is there. They hatch mm-hmm. into fry and the fry survive and, mm-hmm. you know, and they can survive in the Chesapeake Bay that is warming and yeah. they have some dead zones and, you know, that's the typical estuary issues that we have today right and it's not the only spawning ground there's the hudson delaware and the fish is in no 
danger of certainly becoming extinct. But whether we can build the stock back to what it once was is still probably mm-hmm. a question mark. And whether we can even see, you know, some of the size, I mean, historically there were fish, you know, probably up to 125 pounds, maybe larger, that were caught primarily by commercial guys in the 1800s, I would say. Yeah. Um, there's some question whether you, whether a fish can even get to that size any longer with, with the warmer water mm. and the lack of maybe as much food in the spawning grounds. It just takes a lot for a fish to grow that big. Yeah. Well, I know we're going to pay close attention to the to the future of the species, but I like to shift just slightly to uh, – to, to your future a little bit. I know, uh, you know, this book came out. It's getting a lot of really positive press. You're still working on Angler's Journal. You step back ever so yep. slightly, working with editor, new editor-in-chief, Charlie Levine. What, uh, what are you exciting. up to these days? Charlie's doing a nice job. And, you know, just, you know, I'm, uh, it's right now it's January still, and I'm starting to think seriously about what the spring fishing is going to feel like. Yeah. I haven't fished the mouth of the Connecticut River for stripers in, in a while, yeah. um, so I'd like to do that. I got some I'll do that in my twenty-two footer. I'm going to kayak fish in Rhode Island, another river, um, and I want to do a little bit more fly fishing, maybe in the back back bays, okay, and saw ponds for for bass, and also get them a little bit earlier in the spring in the surf as well. So I have a fishing. I got a, f- a spring fishing plan that I'm excited about because I think I'm going to be able to take more people in the skiff on the Connecticut River, and that'd be nice to fish with. Promises, promises. <laughs> <laughs> fish with some friends like you. <laughs> so, yeah, we heard that. All the millions of Paramordia <laughs> listeners, you've, you've heard that. So, And maybe get up into Canada where the fish has been having a bit of a resurgence too and you know catch them in some different, different waters where they haven't yeah. traditionally had a foothold. So. That's amazing. If you don't mind me asking, too, switching to the to your writing side of your life, you kind of got these these two sides. Are there uh, any? You're always chasing interesting stories. Is there anything that you're able to share now? Is there another? Are there any other projects in the in the offing? Any other stories, books? You, you know, I'm thinking of thinking of some other books. You know, okay, that maybe something's going to come out of. Maybe it won't be striped bass, but it'll be mm-hmm. some kind of certainly some kind of fishing, and. Still like to get up to Cape Sable Island. That's right. Where there's yeah, been talking a, about that. a lot of historic shipwrecks and whatnot and sort of go up there and maybe do some fishing in Canada, but also do a general story on, on Sable Island. Mm. I think it could be interesting. Yeah. And, you know, uh, to continue to do some traveling, maybe get back to Alaska in one of these falls and, and do that. But I intend to keep writing. It's been fun. Yeah. And, uh, I want to keep writing for Angler's Journal and some of the other magazines in the group as well. No, we we love to have you and all the people that have read your writing since your since the early days of the, the Soundings internship are, are glad to see that you're not slowing down on fishing. You're not slowing down on the, the no. writing side. God, I don't even know could could you could you go fishing without taking notes? Is that is that you know, is that even possible if we went right now? I'm one. I've been wondering about that because <laughs> I've you know. It's going to feel better if I think I have a story there, I think. so. That's amazing. I feel yeah. the same way about boat trips and, and cruising yeah. with the family. It's like, maybe it's not physical notes, but you're like at least making mental notes. Like, oh, right. this, this is going to be in a column at some point. Yeah. I'm the same way. So I'll always, I think I'll always have a notebook with me. At least I'll have paper and a pen. Hmm. 
And, uh, you know, you can't, you don't know when the story's going to appear or yeah. what's going to happen. That's the nice thing about fishing, you know? Yeah. Or when you're going to run into somebody at the beach or on the rocks or somewhere that's going to say something that's going to jog your mind or jog right. your memory or say, oh, you know, I could do something on this. Um, so I'm always looking for something out of the ordinary. Or maybe it's the very ordinary thing that happens and, mm. you know, you can turn that into something special. You just have to be... You know, you just have to stay in tune to, you know, the, the natural world around you. And, and, and I read a lot, so I, you know, I like to take it down if I have something different to say. I don't want to keep, I don't want to repeat myself and I don't yeah. want to write kind of hackneyed fishing stories. But if something happens out of the ordinary that I can take a small thing and turn it into a bigger lesson or some commentary on life, then I'll do it. It feels a lot like the trap net uh, mending story. You you just that's just going to press now for soundings of all magazines. Right. Yeah, did did a piece on this. There's a trap net family mm -hmm. in Rhode Island. It's one of the last ones working there. Uh, it's a it's a clean, sustainable fishery. The way they catch, they set basically they're floating nets. They're anchored to the bottom with I don't know, like twenty five nine hundred pound anchors. Mm -hmm. And they've got leaders and funnels, and it's sort of like a giant lobster trap in which the fish swim into narrower and narrower. They're, they're led into the trap. Yeah. It's, a, it's a net trap. And then they're, and they stay in there live until they come out the next day. They raise the trap up, bail the fish out if it's a fish they're looking for. Yeah. Often it's like scup or porgies and, right. and whatnot. Sometimes in the season it's striped bass. They have limits on all that. And... Uh, it's just a small, sustainable fishery where they don't burn much fuel, and the fish are all released alive. And they they fish with like a football field, you know, equivalent of mesh, which has to be repaired Amazing. constantly. So this fall, I watched them repair their nets in a big field up in Little Compton, just with these these old what they call you know, mending needles and twine and and uh, putting them back together. You know, a couple of old timers and and uh, and then there was a woman who manages a family uh, yeah. fishing uh, operation who was there. It was it was interesting to see the old ways. Yeah, know, yeah, ways you that, always capture that stuff so yeah. well. I love those stories. It's disappearing. You know, there's only a handful of old-timers, at least, that know how to make a trap net. Yeah. Maybe, you know, two or three. Right, right, literally. So I am interested in the old ways, uh, the disappearing ways, trying to, you know, trying to keep them alive, at least through a story. Right. You know. Because things are, you know, things move so fast in the other direction. You know, I'm reading about artificial intelligence every morning, but uh, you know. I'm over it. I'm over it. Back to real intelligence for a while would be right. nice. Yeah, and being on the water is being on the water and fooling around in boats, and you know, there's an intelligence there. Even though the marine world is really driven by technology as well, there's a lot of old skills that that are still, you know, yeah, very necessary to to to. You know, yeah, there's nothing, well, there's nothing artificial about the way it makes you feel, right? right. I mean, and it's in yeah. connecting with nature, and all those things are still very much why we do right. it. Right, reading the weather, you know, having a weather eye, yeah. you know, going out there and and fishing safely, you know, after dark, mm -hmm. and but still just being aware of what's going around you, on around you, where you are, where yeah. the unlit markers are, you know, all the kinds of things you need to do to operate safely. 
Really well said. Uh, Bill, you know, thank you for coming here today, sharing your story. Thanks for leading oh. our, our marine group by example. But uh, most importantly, thank you for taking me fishing this spring. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to be good. looking forward to that. I am too. I, you know... You know, I'm. You know, I still have a lot of years. I hope, but uh, you don't want to. You don't want to waste any of them. So, the fish are here. It's going to be good. <laughs> let's so go. Let's go fishing. <laughs> I love it. Well, guys, you could also, if uh, if you're interested in fishing and striped bass, love good storytelling, then Season of the Striper is a is really a must read. You, can, I think, the best way to find it is in a, in a lot of different bookstores, but it's available on Amazon.com. Just search Season of the yep. Stripers. You can get, you can order through Zola. You can order Barnes and Noble. Or Amazon.com. Excellent. Cool. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Bill. Appreciate your time. I'll see you later. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review or rating. Or you can share us with your friends on social media or on the VHF. Anywhere you spread the word means a lot to us. Thanks again. And until next time, we'll see you on the water. Devo